everyone. Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are four optometrists who graduated from the Illinois College of Optometry in 2019 and are working in various parts of North America. So if you already followed our podcast in season one, welcome back. If you're new to our podcast, thank you so much for having an interest in what we do. Hopefully you guys love it and will share it with the rest of your optometry family. We developed this podcast on our own to bring U.S. and Canadian optometrists together and to share our clinical knowledge with each other and the Four Eyes family, you guys. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Kar. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. Today we have Dr. Mika Moy and Dr. Sandra Harpster, who are both amazing optometrists and clinical professors from UC Berkeley, and we're talking about STIs in the eyes. Dr. Moy is the director of the residency programs. She's the chair-elect and founding member of the anterior segment section of the AAO, and she's also recently joined the admissions and student affairs office as a faculty advisor. She's all about focusing on students by teaching second, third, fourth year students and residents. Dr. Harpster is also all about teaching. She is the person who stays up to date with the latest scientific research on treatment and management of various ocular diseases. She completed a primary care residency at the San Francisco VA Medical Center back in 2018 as well. So both of these optometrists have so much knowledge that they're ready to share about STIs. And just letting everyone know, these interviews in season two are recorded over Zoom. So apologies in advance for any audio lag or distorted sounds. Enjoy. So Dr. Harpster and Dr. Moy, for our listeners who might not know a lot about you guys, um, do you guys mind giving us a little introduction about yourselves? Yes. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Sandra Harpster. I'm an assistant clinical professor at UC Berkeley. I graduated from UC Berkeley School of Optometry and then completed a residency at the San Francisco VA in primary eye care and ocular disease. And since then, I've been working at UC Berkeley and um, specifically working in the community clinics and also for a clinic affiliated with UCSF. So I've had some exposure to really interesting eye conditions and including sexually transmitted diseases. And so I'm really excited to be here. Um, my name is Mika Moy. I'm a clinical professor at UC Berkeley School of Optometry. I too went to UC Berkeley School of Optometry. I graduated many, many years ago. I teach the anterior segment uh, disease course there. And uh, I've been working at the University Health Services on campus, which means a lot of my patient base are college-aged students which means that sexually transmitted diseases comes up quite frequently in my clinic. Yeah, and that's why you guys were the perfect ones that we decided to bring onto the show to talk about STDs. Um, So I think we're gonna kick it right into high gear. The first thing that we're dying to ask you guys is, what are some of the few ocular STIs or STDs that you have experienced treating? I think I've kind of run into most of them. Um, So, Chlamydia is probably the most common one that I see uh, in my practice. Uh, Gonococcal conjunctivitis has come up 
it seems to be increasing in frequency. So I would say the first 10, 15 years I practiced, I never saw that. And I've had like, oh, probably five cases in the past five years. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, syphilis uh, is on the rise in the Bay Area. And so in the past two or three years, we've had two or three cases. I had one very memorable case of, of tertiary syphilis uh, that had affected this person's brain. Uh, or ability to think. Um, I actually don't consider herpes simplex necessarily an STD because I don't think people, when people get herpes in their eye, they didn't have sex to put it there. Usually, uh, you know, it got there in a different transmission way. So even though it is a potential STD, I don't think of it that way. But so actually, if we're going to count it as an STD, that's the one I see the most by far. And then um, thrasis or pubic lice. That's always interesting when you get a case of those in your practice. I've probably only seen a handful of those as well. You know, I'm old enough that HIV AIDS, when I was graduating, we still didn't have good medicines for that. And so I've actually seen um, like CMV retinitis and uh, on one of my rotations as a fourth year, I had to go uh, examine a patient bedside who was really, really sick uh, with AIDS. Wow. That's like the whole spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I feel like I've tested a lot of patients for chlamydia, like that one just keeps coming up, or at least it's the one that in clinic, sometimes I see a recurrent red eye, and then we end up testing it for chlamydia, whereas with um, gonorrhea, it doesn't masquerade so much as like, maybe it could be this, or maybe it could be that. I've had chlamydia cases, and I've had several syphilis cases, and I have not actually ever had a gonorrhea conjunctivitis case. Yeah. Thank you guys for sharing that. What's interesting, Dr. Moy, is um, when you mentioned the thesis bulbi, because that's the one that I don't always think of compared to the other ones that we just talked about. Yeah. And what's interesting about thrysis, I think I've only seen three or four cases of that. When you learn about that in a textbook, it's always, it's got to be super itchy and itch should clue you in. And all the patients I've had um, have not really had itch as a major component but that's always one that I forget to consider. So sometimes I'm spinning my wheels and I'm like, I don't know what is going on here. And then I'll sit there and if I just have a moment of quiet. Then all of a sudden I'll be like, oh yeah, let's go look for critters. Uh, we've seen that a few times. It's really hard to diagnose because those little guys are sort of skin colored and you shine a light at them and they run away and they try to bury themselves in hair follicles. So unless you have a massive infestation where they can't all get into a hair follicle because there's too many of them, um, then it can be pretty tricky to diagnose. Yeah, so what was the most severe STI case you both had and how was it treated? For me, I would say that my most severe case was a syphilis case because that was a posterior uveitis. So the patient was like count fingers vision. Um, and so I would consider that severe in the sense that it really robbed them of their vision. Um, for syphilis, anytime you're treating ocular syphilis, you treat it as if it's neurosyphilis. So that patient needs to be treated with IV penicillin. Um, other non-ocular and non-neurosyphilis cases, you can do intramuscular penicillin, but for an ocular case of syphilis, then they need the IV penicillin. So that's, that's how that patient was treated. And the vision actually dramatically improved. Um, he got back to like 20-30 vision. Um, but sometimes with the syphilis cases, you would treat them with steroids, um, like topical steroid. Um, but because this case was a posterior uveitis, there's no anterior uveitis, it wasn't necessary to treat them with the topical steroid. 
Um, I think one of the most severe or uh, when you have conococcal conjunctivitis, that's really kind of chugging out a mucus response. It, it's not that hard to diagnose. But I remember a case I had where a patient came in and it looked like bacterial conjunctivitis. It was run-of-the-mill, unilateral. My eye was stuck shut this morning. He had papillae. But something bugged me about it because his lid was quite swollen. And I was like, this, why is his lid swollen? His lid shouldn't be swollen. So I just put, I put him on a, a fluoroquinolone. And I remember uh, he came back as scheduled like three days later. And now it was in his other eye and the initial eye that I had treated, the cornea was starting to get involved and, but he had no copious discharge. And I sat there and I thought, how the heck is his cornea getting involved when I've had him on a pretty decent antibiotic? And that was one of those aha moments where you start looking stuff up and come to find out a hyperacute or gonococcal conjunctivitis, it can take up to five days for the copious mucus discharge to happen. And we had caught him before that. But as soon as the cornea is involved, then there's only a few bacteria. I mean, the list is actually kind of long, but the bacteria are rare. So there are only a few bacteria that can attack an intact cornea. And that is what happened to him. Based on that follow-up, we immediately got some uh, cultures and found out that he indeed, indeed had uh, gonococcal conjunctivitis. Yeah, it's always interesting when sometimes the most severe isn't necessarily the most severe, you know, it's more of it surprises you. And I completely agree with that. Um, what case history questions do you ask uveitis patients to rule STIs in or out? That's a good question. So what, like when I think about the STIs that cause a uveitis, the main thing I'm thinking about is really syphilis, right? And Dr. Moy, maybe you have more experience with this, but if you have a patient with chlamydia conjunctivitis or hyperacute conjunctivitis, maybe you'll see a white blood cell, an inflammatory cell in the AC, but it's not, the main presentation isn't a uveitis, right? So when I have a patient with uveitis, I'm thinking, is this from the STD perspective, could this be syphilis? Or is it possible they have HIV and it's one of these opportunistic infections causing a uveitis? So I think more globally, you just start out asking about their sexual history. Are they a man that has sex with men, a woman that has sex with men? And then if they have a history of STDs in the past. And then the specific questions for syphilis are, have you had a history of a genital ulcer, specifically a painless genital ulcer? Have you had a, an unexplained rash on like the palms of your hand or the soles of your feet? And then if any of those questions are positive, it's not like they all have to be positive, then I, I start becoming a little more suspicious. Um, I would say for uveitis or anytime I ask personal questions of a patient, I always give them a warning <laughs> before I do it because I don't think people go to the eye doctor thinking they're going to get asked really personal questions and it can be very off-putting you could lose your patient pretty fast there. So I always say something along the lines of, um, you know, based on the appearance of your eye, there are actually some other diseases I want to consider. And you may not know this, but sexually transmitted diseases can actually affect the eye. So I need to ask you some personal questions right now or something along those lines. Um, and the first question is always, are you sexually active? We'll get personal since this is the STD podcast. Um, people's definition of what constitutes sex can be very different. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I say, are you sexually active? What I really mean is, is there any chance that you exchanged bodily fluids with another human being, however that may have happened? And for some people, 
There are ways that you can do that without actually having what they would call sex. So you have to be kind of careful with how you ask the question. There are a lot of anterior segment um, experts who feel that anybody who has a uveitis, even if it's a first episode, no matter what the appearance of the uveitis is, ought to have syphilis testing. And uh, syphilis is on the rise. All STDs are actually. Um, I think, you know, syphilis especially is more of a risk if in uh, males who have sex with males. So I, the question that I usually ask in a very, you have to be very straightforward. You can't look embarrassed. You have to be very non-judgmental is, do you have sex with men, women, or either? And I say that, and I usually do it in that order, regardless of the gender of the person I'm speaking with. And I must also say, since I've been practicing a while, people are much more comfortable answering those questions now than they were 20 years ago. So it's not nearly as difficult of a conversation. Yeah, I feel, I agree with that. I feel like the, the conversation about being sexually active and all of the dangers around it um, is definitely showing up a lot more in our generation compared to even like our parents' generation where no one really spoke about it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And there's lots more services available and anonymous services too. In fact, at the student health services where I work, starting about two years ago, students on campus, so both undergraduate and graduate students, can order their own screening STD tests on an app. And then they just show up at the lab. They don't have to speak to a doctor first to request those labs. And I think bringing down that barrier has a lot to do with people feeling more comfortable about getting those answers. So after asking all these important uh, case history questions, are there any additional in-office testing methods you guys recommend to evaluate the condition aside from a regular slit lamp exam and a dilated fundus evaluation? So things like corneal sensitivity testing, OCT scans, using adenoplus or quick view to rule out adenoviral conjunctivitis. So as far as all the adenovirus tests go, I got really excited when those tests first came out, but I don't use them on a regular basis unless uh, I was involved in a research study where we used them. And that was probably the last time I did use them. The reason I don't is more logistical. So in order to charge for this test, because in the United States, it's very different than in Canada, right? So if I buy those tests, I have to be able to charge for those tests so I can make my money back. That means I have to get what's called a CLIA waived certification. And I have to do that at a state level and a federal level. So by the time I pay for those things and the test, I got to do a lot of them to make it, uh, to break even. And the other one that you mentioned that I'd like to comment on is um, corneal sensitivity. So HSV is really easy to diagnose once the patient knows that they have a history of it. Because a lot of times the patient will walk in and they'll say, I think I have that HSV thing again in my eye. And so then you're sort of alerted to it. It's in the front of your mind and you can approach the patient that way. The hardest diagnosis is the first one. And I think because of where I practice, oftentimes I find myself in a situation because my patient base is younger where I'm making the first diagnosis. And corneal sensitivity really isn't helpful in a first diagnosis. As we all know, HSV reduces corneal sensitivity as a function of the number of episodes. So when you're on episode six, your cornea is significantly desensitized compared to episode one. And in fact, in episode one, uh, unless you've been cooking that for several weeks, 
then it's your cornea is not going to be desensitized at all. To follow up with that, when when you're asking about doing OCT, when I think of OCT, I think of po- like imaging the macula or the optic nerve. Although there could be a role for you know in some of these conditions that are affecting the cornea, maybe doing an anterior segment OCT. But you know, I don't think it's really the case that you need to just run blanket MAC and optic nerve head OCTs when you have these anterior segment conditions. But the OCT can be really helpful for posterior uveitis, and it's a good baseline to get. And it can be really helpful if you think maybe the op- there's something funny going on with the optic nerve to get a baseline that kind of way. Um, the other test that I think is commonly being done when you're suspicious of an STD in the eye is a culture, a conjunctival culture, which I, when I think of a chlamydia or a gonorrhea, it's like the culture is the, one of the most important tests that you can do. Yeah. And actually, Dr. Harpster, that's, that's a perfect segue into my question. How do we actually culture a patient uh, when we're suspecting STIs? Where do we even send the culture to? And what sort of lab do you need to get into contact with? Okay, so let's break this up. If you, if you think your patient has syphilis, the, you're not really going to be performing a conj culture because this is not something that's residing just really superficially in the eye. Um, and Dr. Moya, I know you've done a lot more cultures testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea. But in my community clinic, the way that it works is you, we actually have to use the nasal pharyngeal swab. So it comes, it's like in a pink medium and it's different actually than the culture you would be taking for genital chlamydia. And so my first advice would be to find out what lab you're sending it to and figure out what medium they want, because it seems like it actually does vary. Um, And then my second piece of advice with the chlamydia culture conj culture is that you have to do it quite hard that if you get a little bit of blood when you're culturing that's actually a good sign and I and Dr. Moy has also told me that too um which is can be a little bit intimidating and then the other thing I've learned is the chlamydia gonorrhea swab is supposed to be on ice before it goes to the lab oh that's interesting one of the reasons why you need to push as hard as you do is because chlamydia replicates intracellularly And so you actually have to get some of the conjunctival epithelial cells on the swab in order for them to be able to make that diagnosis for you. So um, you need to make sure you write the name of the patient, the date of birth of the patient, the date the sample was taken, and the location the sample was taken from. So that last one, I think, is something that people forget a lot about. And so your lab's going to call you unless you say, I took this from the right conjunctiva or something like that. It usually comes upstairs in a biohazard bag. So I stick it back in the biohazard bag and I actually have the patient transport it to the lab. Um, And that's for insurance reasons. And the patient has to present their ID uh, for me. If I have a member from the general public that I want to do a kit on, then it's a lot more complicated because I got to figure out what's their major medical insurance, which lab are they going to go to? And then I got to figure out if I can get the right kit for, you know, from that lab. So it becomes a lot more um, work intensive. So basically for um, optometrists that are in like private practice settings, um, they would have to pay attention to the insurances that they accept to figure out which lab they're going to go to. Yeah, exactly. It gets tricky really fast. And Dr. Moy brought up a good point that you, you can still anesthetize this has occurred to me when I'm taking the cultures. Can I anesthetize the patient or is that going to somehow kill the specimen? And I have had positive results come back, even though I've anesthetized the patient. 
Alex, do you guys have cultures? Because are you, is your practice close to any hospital in Alaska? Yeah, I mean, we have a hospital about 10 minutes away from our location. I don't think we do have any cult, like culture kits or anything, but my dad does hold on to everything. So we might have one that's like 20 years old somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and then deep, like deep on works in a rural area. So would, do you guys have anything for like any sort of emergency like that when it comes up? So those are pretty rare in Canada. So what you would actually end up doing is just referring them to a corneal specialist, like an ophthalmologist, and they would actually end up doing most of that stuff. I think this brings up another good point because a lot of times we are co-managing with primary care. If you send a patient to a primary care provider and say, I am suspicious of chlamydial conjunctivitis, the primary care provider is probably going to order a urinalysis. Um, to detect whether or not there's genital chlamydia. And the issue there is that up to 60% of patients who have conjunctival chlamydia are genital negative. Uh, getting a urinalysis that's chlamydia negative does not mean your patient does not have chlamydial conjunctivitis. Uh, what are your go-to lab tests that you order for all patients with anterior, posterior, or panubiitis? and what labs are included to rule out STIs? So that's a hard question because I really break it up into if it's anterior uveitis and we're more likely to order certain labs versus intermediate versus posterior versus pan. Um, but in general, for all uveitis, so I always order syphilis tests, I always order tuberculosis testing. And those are important because those are infections. So before you start thinking about some of the other conditions, even if you are thinking about them, you want to rule out the infections. And for the same reason, I order um, chest x-ray for tuberculosis and also for sarcoid. If the uveitis is anterior, I also always order HLA-B27. That's like one of the most common causes of an anterior uveitis. And then once it's posterior or intermediate or pan, then, you know, typically those patients were referring them um, sometimes before we're even ordering the lab testing. For syphilis testing, so there are treponemal tests and non-treponemal tests. The sequence of doing this has changed a little bit. So just to review, um, the non-treponemal tests, we think of the, these as being the VDRL or the RPR, and these detect anti-cardiolipin antibodies. So these are going to be positive in, in active disease. But these antibodies are a little bit nonspecific, so sometimes they'll be positive if you have another infection. And then there are the treponemal tests. Um, these are detecting antibodies against the syphilis, syphilis bacteria itself. So these are positive even after treatment. So this is like TPPA, FTA, ABS, and now we have these newer ones, um, EIA and CIA, and they stand for things that I should know, but I can't <laughs> off the top of my head. Ideally, I would order the treponemal test first, and then it would reflex to the non-treponemal test, which is actually the reverse of what it used to be. Typically, you would do it the other way. The big key thing is that you have to have two positive tests. If you get one positive syphilis test, you can't like send them for immediate IV penicillin. You always have to confirm it with the second test. I would echo what Dr. Harpster said is that you shouldn't just order all the tests. Um, because there's always false positives and false negatives, and it could cloud your clinical picture. So really, it depends on 
where the uveitis is, and then is there a compelling secondary symptom? Uh, is there a high risk behavior? Um, those sorts of things. Yeah, that's perfect. What you guys said, we're taught also not to do that. Um, what's it called? Uh, shotgun approach. Shotgun, approach, shotgun yeah. approach. Yeah. Sorry, I was gonna say gunshot approach. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> I think that's where case history is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So, what particular signs like stand out to you the most when you're considering like testing for syphilis? So the the signs where maybe I am thinking more about syphilis um, is one, the patient. So we know it's most common in men that have sex with men. We, we know it's, you're going to see it in a patient that's sexually active. But in, from the eye perspective, it really presents, it can affect any tissue of the eye, right? So it can present with an anterior uveitis alone. It can present with a cranial nerve palsy. Obviously, anytime it's, you have a posterior uveitis, you're always ruling out syphilis. If you have a patient who's pregnant and they have a uveitis, those patients need to be tested for syphilis because congenital syphilis um, is such a big problem. And that is increasing um, like crazy in the United States to the point where now all pregnant patients are being tested for syphilis. Yeah. Um, just kind of going off that too, like I know in school we learn about like the argue Robertson's people associated with syphilis. Uh, how, have you ever detected that in a patient, in a potential syphilis patient, like seen that? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't even been thinking about it very much. And the reason for that is, in one, I'm probably wrong in not thinking about it since we do have this big re resurgence of syphilis. But for someone to have Argyle Robertson pupil from syphilis, it means they have tertiary syphilis. So neurosyphilis can happen at any stage of the disease, right? It's kind of a misconception that if you have neurosyphilis, it means you have tertiary syphilis. Um, but Argyle Robinson pupil is a sign of late neurosyphilis. So it means that you, you like do have tertiary syphilis. Um, and so most patients in the modern world have the, their syphilis has been detected before it's reached the tertiary stage. Um, and just to review, so Argyle Robertson pupil would be your patient that has really meiotic pupils. They're not reacting to the light. You do a near accommodation test, and then there is a little bit of um, activation when they're accommodating. Um, but I, and I, I think I maybe should be thinking about it more now, but I just really haven't been in clinic. It's a really interesting question. Yeah, I, I don't either. And I think it's because there are much bigger, easier to read signs at that stage. And I almost feel like if you go looking for an Argyle Robertson people at that point, it's almost just for academic funsies and it's not really for your diagnosis reasons. I don't know. Um, in both of your guys' experience, what's the visual prognosis for patients with HSV, chlamydia, gonorrheal, or syphilitic ocular disease? Is there a critical treatment window? So I think um, for like chlamydia and gonorrhea, prognosis is quite good. For HSV, as long as it's just in the epithelium, the prognosis is also quite good. As soon as it's stromal, then, you know, then we got trouble. Um, in terms of syphilis, for all of them, the sooner you treat it, the better the outcome is going to be. And then the other thing about syphilis is if a patient has HIV, they're more likely to manifest syphilis in the eye. And it, once you have HIV and ocular syphilis, I think the visual potential um, goes down and, the, and treating even quicker becomes more important. 
So kind of going back what Dr. Moy was talking about earlier, um, HSV and like how the first diagnosis is very hard to make. So, so do you have any tips or tricks that you have learned throughout your career, how you can identify HSV keratitis compared to like herpes zosters in a patient? HSV keratitis, I think one of the reasons why it can be difficult to initially diagnose on a first episode is because it shares quite a lot of symptomatology with a lot of other things. The pain component should be able to jog you one way or another. So if a patient is more in pain than you would expect based on how they're looking, mm -hmm. um, that would be a sign. Another one is if you're waiting for the dendrite to appear, then you're doing your patient a disservice because it takes quite a while before, well, it doesn't necessarily have to. I've seen people grow a dendrite in a couple of days. They've told me they're only symptomatic for a couple of days and then there it is. But by and large, it usually starts off stellate first in terms of the epithelial defects. Another sign is you'll have a lot more corneal edema than you would expect based on the epitheliopathy that you're seeing. So I remember I had a patient once who had only one very small stellate lesion, but she was in pain. And then when I looked, I could see this. So the stellate lesion, you know, is microns big, but then she had about two millimeters worth of edema surrounding it. Um, also, I find lid edema shows up a lot faster in HSV epithelio uh, epitheliopathies. For stromal HSV, theoretically, you cannot have stromal HSV as a first episode. You have to have had uh, HSV uh, epitheliopathy first, and usually you've had it a couple of times before it hits your stroma. Um, and then certainly HSV is one of those diseases that can cause an AC reaction. And so if you're looking at their cornea and you're like, that cornea looks pretty mild, but they're popping an AC reaction, that would also make me more suspicious. That's really good to know because I've heard of patients who are mistakenly treated with steroids or artificial tears because the HSV at the time wasn't really apparent. I've only had two patients that I put on a steroid who ended up having HSV. I have very good reasons why I had an, a lapse, an error in those two cases, but I can tell you it is a lot harder for antivirals to work. Like those, those two cases became very resistant to treatment afterwards. And number one, number two, a lot of the patient's symptoms go away. So the redness goes away and the pain goes away. And so they think they're getting better. And so the, if you really need to see them for follow-up to make sure that you didn't just fuel a fire, you're at a, a pretty high risk of that patient not coming back. The first patient I ever put a steroid on and it turned out to be HSV. He uh, had had a red eye, so they put him on gentamicin. Well, it turns out he was allergic to gentamicin. So when he shows up in my clinic, his eye is swollen shut, and I have to pry it open to see anything, and I was like, whoa, you know what you need? You need a steroid. So I threw a steroid on him. He got so much better, and he comes back for his follow-up, and I was like, huh, what is this funny little corneal lesion here? And then I was like, it's probably nothing. You're fine. Go back, you know, go away for a few more days, come back. And when he came back, I was like, oh, it was obvious it was HSV, but it lacked a lot of these signs that I'm telling you about. So he didn't have a lot of corneal edema. You know why? Steroid. He didn't have an AC reaction. You know why? Steroid. He didn't have hyperemia. You know why? Steroid. He didn't have pain. You know why? Steroid. So yeah, I think if you have someone with an epithelial defect and you're not sure what it is, I'm not sure 
just putting a steroid on it is a wise decision. That was perfectly said. I would never say like, just to be safe, let's try a steroid. (laughs) That's wrong. Which I'll segue us back to sexually transmitted. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that I just wanted to mention that has changed recently in terms of treating STDs um, that this reminds me of is what's interesting is that nowadays from a public health perspective, the recommendation, especially since gonorrhea mutates so rapidly and it's going to a scary place where we, it might, we might have a strain that doesn't respond to anything in, in a few years. Now the recommendation is to treat empirically and to not necessarily wait for the culture. Yeah. So those types of prescribing habits have changed recently. And I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was going to ask about that. So you already read my mind, but um, does that apply for any type of STI or STD that you're suspecting? Or is it for specific ones when you decide to treat before the lab's return? So I think for gonorrhea, for sure, because if they have the discharge, either genitally or conjunctivally, that you can almost diagnose from across the room. You almost don't need the slant to even diagnose that, right? For syphilis though, I don't know, what would you think, Dr. Harpster? I doubt they're going to treat before they get confirmation for syphilis. Yes, especially because it is, if you're concerned about ocular syphilis, it's that you're admitted to the hospital and you're given IV penicillin for like two weeks. They're always waiting for the positive um, lab tests, which typically come back in a day or two. Interesting too, like syphilis still responds to penicillin, whereas gonorrhea has mutated so much that the recommended treatment has changed dramatically since we've had antibiotics over the past. Yeah. And that's a good point to anytime you have one of these STDs, don't go back to your notes about how to treat it. You want to go to the Centers of Disease Control website and see what the updated thing is, especially for gonorrhea, because that's changed. Yeah, definitely. Actually, Dr. Harpster, I wanted to add on another question to what you just mentioned. So For any sort of um, STI or ocular condition where you're waiting for labs, do you try to treat topically in any way before the labs return, especially for like a syphilis patient? Yeah, that's it. So that's something that's a really good question because you think, okay, if this uveitis is infectious, I don't want to treat with a steroid like that. That just makes sense, right? But for syphilis, um, you can start treating with a topical steroid if there's if there's anterior uveitis. Would I do Durazol like Q1 hour? No, like I think I would, you know, Pred Forte six times a day, something like that would be more reasonable. I was also gonna mention at some point that for for ocular syphilis, the patient also needs a lumbar puncture. Yeah, that is something that we wanted to also ask about. Um, Like what other additional testing would you wanna do for some of these STDs once the labs have come back positive? So globally, once if a patient has, is positive for one STD, it should if it should trigger testing for all the STDs, co-manage and make sure they get the full STD panel, and you're not leaving out any of them. Um, but for syphilis specifically, ocular syphilis and neurosyphilis need a lumbar puncture, um, and they test for um, CSF VDRL, and they also look at like the white blood cell counts and like you know, signs of infection in the cerebral spinal fluid. But you might be thinking, why do we need to put our patients through a lumbar puncture if we're going to treat the ocular syphilis patients as if they have neurosyphilis anyway? And the, the logic is because you, if they do have like a positive CSF VDRL, you'd want to treat the patient and then you actually do another lumbar puncture to make sure that 
the treatment was effective. Um, so now that we finally diagnosed um, our patient with an STI and given all the correct treatments and made all the appropriate referrals, when are we expecting to see the patient back and what should the follow-up period be like in terms of timing and testing? Um, so I think that depends on which STI they have, right? So I would say, you know, because like gonococcal, I'm going to follow more closely because that can attack an intact cornea, which can then ulcerate and perforate and cause problems. So I'm going to monitor that closely until I see them turn a corner where their cornea is getting better, I guess, if their cornea is affected. Chlamydia, I haven't had a case yet that didn't respond well to treatment. So oftentimes I'll just be like, okay, I'll see you in a week. Syphilis, often I'm co-managing with somebody else. And so then it, it kind of depends on how it's presenting itself. If I can't trust the patient to be compliant, then I tend to have them come in more often too. So there's a lot of factors, I think, built into that. My experience has been that patients are embarrassed. And so they almost don't, um, and every time they're having to talk about something that's embarrassing, and that kind of just goes back to the way that it's addressed in the first place, like trying to make the patient feel like there's not a stigma associated with it, which we know is one of the reasons why there are there is a big increase in STDs among other things. It's like, there's the stigma associated with it. Um, and same thing, like it totally depends on the case when you're going to follow them. Chlamydia. I don't know. I feel like I see them back. I start them on the treatment and I see them back in several days. So not in 24 hours and probably not in 48 hours because it won't have changed enough. I feel like we actually covered a lot and we learned a lot more um, aside from just our regular like textbooks and we don't have that much experience I think personally with treating STIs so this is information that hopefully is going to help us in our career and also our listeners because most of them are probably new grads too who don't have too much experience just yet so yeah thank you thanks yeah. for the invite we had a great time talking with Dr. Harpster and Dr. Moy about ocular-related STDs, and hopefully everyone listening has taken away a lot from this conversation as well. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to Four Eyes. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Four Eyes Optom for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday morning, so stay tuned.